Goodbye, Professor. All right, you ready to do this? Yep. All right, let's make some podcast magic. Okay. All right. Magic time. Hey, everybody. My name's Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. Welcome to Marvel by the Month. We are going to be talking about all the comics that were released, cover dated February 1965. But before we do that, uh, we got to remind all these people about our uh, upcoming live show. Saturday, February 29th, 6 p.m., Books with Pictures here in beautiful Portland, Oregon. What are we going to have at this show? Special guests? Oh, yeah. T-shirts. T-shirts. Pins. We'll be there. We'll be there. If we're not, it's going to go really bad. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be a blast. Uh, now that it's getting a little closer, I'm a little nervous about it. Yep. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to stay nervous. Um, I'm going to stay as nervous as if the if I've been sprayed with some kind of fear gas. <laughs> <laughs> but uh no i think it's gonna be a blast um i'm really looking forward to it uh again so grateful to katie proctor uh who owns books with pictures for uh letting us come and uh just stink up her space mm-hmm. um with our dumb podcast uh, really <laughs> uh it's it's a I, i've been looking forward to doing this for a while so if you need to scout it out before the podcast mm-hmm. maybe buy some you know comics yeah she just updated um, her display with a, a nicely labeled local creators section. Um, and we've talked about Portland being like Comic City USA uh, several times here on the podcast. But it's absolutely true. We have so many A-list talents uh, in this town and up-and-coming creators um, and folks who do stuff not just in the superhero spectrum, but like all across uh, basically every genre you could possibly work in. Yeah. Um, Some very cool stuff. I feel like Portland, uh, what it missed when Seattle became the grunge city uh, is where it started to become the comic city. Yeah, (laughs) I think so too. But before we do that show, we got to do this show and then uh, a few shows after that. By the way, um, I don't want to reveal what we're doing for next week's show, but I'm very excited about it. Um, I think it's a... it's going to be a very fun concept. We're going to take a little break from the uh, month of comics format that we usually do, mm-hmm. um, and we're gonna we're gonna bring a little love into everyone's life. Ooh, love! So uh, not that kind of love. That no. sounded creepy. Sorry, <laughs> it sounded very FM radio <laughs> voice. Um, but yeah, so uh, next week's show will be great. But this week's show uh, also is going to be pretty good. Before we jump into uh, talking about the comics uh, that we're going to be discussing this month. We got to talk about what was going on in the world in this month. So uh, all this month's comics are cover dated February 1965. That means they hit the stands in December of 1964. Um, So we're going to give you a little glimpse of what was going on in December 1964. Uh, And there's a lot of it. Um, I... I made a giant list of stuff to mention, and then I cut that list in half. And it's, and still, it's still giant. a giant list. Yeah. Um, it's about twelve feet. It's almost a giant man of a list. <laughs> well, why don't you uh, <laughs> why don't you lead us into this uh, and tell us a little bit about what was going on with the commies? The commies. Okay, on the first of December, nineteen sixty four, the Supreme Court of the Soviet Union announced a change in the nation's historic presumption of guilt in criminal proceedings in favor of the presumption of innocence, often described as innocent until proven guilty. <laughs> yeah. So before that, you were just guilty until proven innocent. Yeah, yeah. The burden of proof was on the defendant to prove that they were innocent. Wow. Which is crazy. <laughs> um, on the 11th, uh, Che Guevara addressed the UN General Assembly. Guevara, a guerrilla leader in the Cuban Revolution, was serving at the time as the Minister for Industry in Cuba as part of the cabinet of Fidel Castro. Guevara charged that the United States was a warmonger and said, 
quote, a gigantic flock of 200 million Latin Americans is giving a warning note to the Yankee imperialists. The hour of vindication is being pointed to with precision. During his address, an anti-tank rocket was fired at the United Nations headquarters in New York City by a person holding a bazooka. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Police found the weapon on a street in Queens mounted beneath a Cuban flag and apparently fired by a Cuban exile. The shell fell 100 yards from the UN building and landed in the East River where it exploded. Yeah. Wow. I I'd never heard of that. I had never heard of that either. Like he he makes the the address and then somebody fires a bazooka yeah, at yeah. the UN. I mean, this is, you know, this is the 60s, so, you know, obviously unfortunately we know that, you know, there was a, a fair amount of gunplay going on, you know, with <laughs> you know, with leaders that someone, you know, took a dislike to, but um I think this is the first time I've heard of a bazooka being fired at yeah. someone. <laughs> Why don't you take us over to Vietnam? Oh boy, would I love to. <laughs> um well, actually I'm not going to take us to Vietnam. Uh, I'm going to take us to something Vietnam adjacent. Ooh. Uh on the 2nd of December, uh Mario Savio addressed a crowd of 5,000 students at the University of California in Berkeley, guiding them to occupy the university's administration building, Sproul Hall. More than 1,000 walked into the building to begin a sit-in. 814 of the occupiers were arrested, and most of those who sat in and were jailed were students. There were a lot of protest movements that were all coming to the fore. Um, obviously, you know, civil rights and especially at this time, Vietnam, um, now that we're officially in it um, and there is a draft on and college students are subject to the draft. You know, this is definitely um, front and center on a lot of people's minds. It was either the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam or just some other OPB NPR thing. Uh, but I did just just hear some of this coverage and it and some of the firsthand accounts and yeah. it sounds pretty it sounds crazy it sounds crazier when you hear people talking about it than even what we're talking about here yeah absolutely and this is also one of those events that gives um berkeley its reputation for being you know this um liberal incubator um, yeah and liberal and, radical hotbed exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, during the speech uh savio said there is a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part, and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop, and you've got to indicate to the people who own it that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. It's um, awesome. And this basically, uh, this was the start of the free speech movement. It would expand from Berkeley to other university and college campuses across America, and it would extend beyond America. Um, this was a huge movement, um, you know, and a huge part of the protest culture of the '60s. Oh, and actually, in Vietnam, uh, in addition to you know all the other badness um, that's just taking place on a daily basis, uh, on the 14th of December, 1964, Operation Barrel Roll. Uh, which was the secret bombing of the neutral kingdom of Laos by U.S. planes, began with U.S. Air Force bombers flying out of Thailand to attack suspected concentrations of Viet Cong guerrillas. Originally, attacks were limited to eight sorties per week, so on average, more than one a day, mm-hmm. um, but would increase in intensity and would last until the end of the war in 1973. So yeah, we were bombing a neutral nation because we were trying to get... Uh, the Viet Cong, uh, who we believed were there. And, you know, in some cases they were, some cases they weren't. Yeah, that sounds questionable. Yeah. Um, well, 
I guess it's time for civil rights. On the 4th of December, uh, FBI agents arrested 19 men in and around Neshoba County, Mississippi on federal indictments arising from the June 21st kidnapping and murder of Andrew Goodman, Michael Schferner, and James Cheney. Uh, most were freed the same day when friends posted bonds of $5,000 apiece for them. Six days later, a U.S. trial commissioner in Meridian voided the arrest warrants on 19 of the 21 defendants pending a hearing for whether there was probable cause for continuing charges. Yeah. So uh, this is the three murdered civil rights uh, workers um, who were killed earlier that year. And this just goes to show that, okay, the Civil Rights Act may be in force at a federal level, uh, but you're still having to rely on local officials to carry out a lot of this. Uh, so, And they're not. Right. Just because we did finally pass one of the most important pieces of legislation uh, for the civil rights movement <laughs> that was not even close to the beginning of the end of uh, racism and, and just horrible bigotry in America. Um, well, on the 7th of December, the United States Supreme Court struck down as unconstitutional a Florida law that prohibited cohabitation between mixed race couples, noting that Florida did not prohibit cohabitation by persons of the same race. The case of McLaughlin v. Florida arose when Dewey McLaughlin, a black man, and Connie Hoffman, a white woman, had been sentenced to 30 days in jail after living together in Miami. Yeah. Uh, the court avoided commenting on state laws prohibiting interracial marriage. Yeah. They basically just said, if you're going to ban this for interracial couples, you have to also have something on the book saying that you're banning it for couples of the same race. Uh, on the 14th of December... In two separate cases, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in its prohibition of racial discrimination in lodging and in restaurants. In both cases, the court rejected the argument that the businesses were not within the jurisdiction of the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, so basically you just had, uh, I believe in this case, one case was involving a restaurant and one case was involving a hotel they were owned by people who wanted to continue to be able to discriminate. Um, and the Supreme Court said, no, you can't. Um, and they tried to get around the Civil Rights Act by arguing some arcane constitutional, like, well, maybe it's sort of like the arguments around Obamacare. We can't say that this is a bad idea on its face. So we're just going to say it's like, you actually don't have the power to do this. <laughs> but the Supreme Court rejected that, fortunately. You know, it's another one of those cases where even though we have this law in place, it's not like people who thought that segregation was great were just like, well, that's it. They passed a law. I guess we have to get along and like <laughs> yeah. suddenly, you know, upgrade our thinking. Um, that that never happens that way. No, yeah. it happens through painful, painful steps forward. Yeah, exactly. I know you just uh, talked about both of these, but um, I feel like this next bit, as we move into pop culture, uh, has your name all over it. Yeah, I'll kick us off. Thanks. With Beatles by the month. Uh, on the 4th of December, 1964, Beatles for Sale, the fourth studio album by the Beatles, was released in the UK on the Parlophone label and included the single Eight Days a Week. Songs from the 34-minute British album would appear on two American albums, Beatles 65, and Beatles 6. This album was recorded in seven non-consecutive days and stayed on the U.S. charts for 46 weeks. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it was while they were touring, playing shows, doing TV appearances, whenever they got like a one-day break, they would go to the studio seven times, and then the album's done. 
That's crazy. Yeah. The the idea that, I mean, how long has it been since a band just knocked out an album in seven days? Also, much less saw that kind of results from it. That you doesn't know? happen ever now. Yeah. 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 On the same day uh, that Beatles for Sale came out, uh, another momentous occasion, uh, Marissa Tomei, Aunt May in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, was born in Brooklyn, New York. Nice. Yeah. It ties back. It does. Uh, and then two days later, Rankin Bass Productions' one-hour stop-motion animated special, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, was broadcast for the first time on NBC. It became a Christmas tradition in the United States, delivering the heartwarming message to children of all ages that the things that make you unique are only valid if they make you useful <laughs> to other people. On the 21st, almost Christmas, the James Bond film Goldfinger premiered in the United States after being released in British theaters in September. Uh, it remains one of the most successful and popular Bond films ever made. I think that's the fourth Bond film that we have covered uh, since this podcast started. Yeah, um, so this spy thing is heating up. It's 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 doing pretty well, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, makes you wonder if Stan Lee has any ideas percolating in his Stan head. Stan has watched any of these movies or read any Ian Fleming. Uh, on the 21st also, at the conclusion of his obscenity trial, American comedian Lenny Bruce was sentenced to four months in prison for three counts of giving obscene performances in a Greenwich Village cafe in New York City. The owner of Cafe Agogo was fined $1,000. Uh, Bruce was allowed to remain free on bond while he pursued an appeal of the verdict and would die of an overdose in 1966 while the conviction was still on appeal. 39 years later, he would be granted a posthumous pardon by New York Governor George Pataki. So uh, I threw this one in there because we, we, we've seen Greenwich Village pop up a few times. Mm -hmm. I think... Uh, we've had it explicitly mentioned that Doctor Strange lives there. Um, the X Men go there uh, when they're they hang in... out in cafes, right? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it, I think it's useful to get a sense of it's like if you're living in Middle America or elsewhere, uh, not in New York City. This is how Greenwich Village is entering your consciousness. Yeah. Um, you know, things like this are are what's coming up. Um, if you think New York is the big city and Greenwich Village is like the weird part, it's right. the Berkeley exactly. <laughs> of, of New York City. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, just one more thing here, a little uh, Pacific Northwest history uh, to throw in there, um, which you may know more about this than I do since I grew up on the other side of the country. Um, but on the 18th of uh, December, the deadly Christmas flood of 1964 that would wind up killing 47 people during the holiday season began with a powerful Pacific Ocean storm that brought record snowfalls in Northern California, Oregon, and Washington with accumulations of up to 10 feet in Oregon's Cascade Mountains. Wow. As warmer temperatures arrived from another front, the snowstorm changed to a torrential warm rain with two months' worth falling in just five days and melting the snow at even the highest elevations and swelling the Willamette River and the Umpqua River and their tributaries. Yeah, all I know about it is the markings on different docks of, oh, sure. of where this flood occurred compared to some other floods mm -hmm. that we had uh, in more recent memory in the last 20 years or right, so. Right, right. Or maybe 30. I, I lose track of time. But uh, <laughs> that and the, the Columbus Day storm that have happened here, which was a really devastating, almost hurricane-like mm. storm, um, which we'll probably get to at some point in the near future. <laughs> yeah. Uh, those were the two things that, um, of weather events that people would mention, like my grandparents would mention. Right, right. Um, 
because it was so notable. Yeah. So this, this would have been like, what, 10 years before you were born? Yeah. 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 I think my grandfather might have still been a lumberjack. Wow. Up, up in the Cascades. Oh, boy. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. That's our historical context for December 1964. Uh, we are going to take our first break. And when we come back, we're going to start talking about uh, the comics that were cover dated February 1965 here on Marvel by the Month. <laughs> Okay, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. It is time for Rob's favorite segment of the podcast. As you know, uh, Marvel published too dang many comics every month for us to cover every single one of them in detail. Uh, we're going to go ahead and zero in on two of them in the back half of this podcast. Everything else winds up in this segment called Marvel by the Minute, where Rob realizes too late what a lifetime of rock and roll excess has done to his ability to retain basic information about the comics that he just read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How are you feeling tonight, Rob? Well, I need to point out that my excess, I didn't drink anything until I was 26. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I made up for some time, did a lot of brain damage, um, <laughs> but uh, I can't really blame it all on that. It's also just age and pure stupidity. But, uh, you know, I, I'm going to proudly, you know, forge ahead. I, I'm noticing now uh, we have read 228 comics so far for this podcast, so you know, the fact that they're starting to blend together in what <laughs> what is left of your mind. Yeah. Um, like, I think that's a totally understandable situation to find yourself in. Yeah, I feel like if there were three, I could give you a really solid plot recap. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's that point where I've read some of these falling asleep. I'm in my, like fifth one in one day and I'm, and, <laughs> and they're reference to one comic that ha- hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Like, uh, there's all kinds of bizarre things as these Stan's getting a little weird with his continuity and we'll get to that. Um, well, uh, the first one, let's, let's start off uh, slow with a, a comic that has just a single story in it. Um, this is Sergeant Fury and his howling commandos. Number 15. The title of the story is too small to fight too young to die it's written by stan lee with art by dick Ayers, inked by steve ditko this time which is an unusual pair yeah you don't usually see that yeah you don't see uh, ditko doing finishes on other people's work all that often but mm-hmm. um but here we are um so uh i'm going to put 60 seconds on this clock uh how are you feeling about this one um this is the last thing i read so i'm going to remember a little. All right. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's see uh, how much is a little. Uh, <laughs> 60 seconds and go. All right. So Fury and the Howlers are sent to Holland and their mission is going to be to blow up a dike in order to flood a, a Nazi encampment. Right. So see, so far so good. Um, they, when they're there, they're supposed to meet Agent X, some agent that know, will know them. They don't know who it is. They're not allowed to know anything about it. So it makes for... A, a really convoluted mission. Yeah, not a real super well thought through no. plot. Or... And Fury's sure that they're all going to die. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he keeps just saying about how expendable they are. Uh, <laughs> they're saved by a small boy with a twenty two right off the, right when they get there. Uh, he shoots some Nazis, distracts them. They get scared that there's some uh, rebels and run off. So uh, this boy's father is the mayor of the town who is a Quisling, who is a turned to to join the nazis as far as he can tell and he wants to defend his honor uh the eventually the meet agent x and blow the, the dike right and it's heavily implied 
that, that agent the mayor X, that agent X who we only see in like a wetsuit with goggles yeah uh, who like swims up from I don't know what are the things that dikes connect is it rivers is it like it's probably an ocean or sea don't this is just goes back to what I said last like <laughs> we were talking about geography and Stan placing the Bavarian Alps and right and the Balkans in the same place. Sure. Yeah. And we knew better and that's saying something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. So the agent X, uh, swims up and tells the howlers to blow up this one. Um, so you don't kill everyone in Holland. Um, <laughs> but it's heavily hinted at that, that frogman, that agent X is the mayor mm-hmm. who is only pretending to be a Nazi sympathizer, but he sends his son away with the howlers yes. back to the States. Right. Exactly. Who's uh who still thinks his, his dad's basically a traitor. Right. So it's touching. It's very touching. Maybe less touching tales to astonish number 64. Um, in the first story, when Atuma strikes, uh, which was uh, written by Leon Lazarus, who first time I've ever seen that name come up in a Marvel comic uh, with a, a plotted by Stan Lee. Art by Carlos Burgos, uh, inked by Paul Reinman. Um, this is Giant Man and the Wasp versus Atuma. Kind of starts out with Giant Man being kind of a jerk, uh, like more of a jerk than he usually is. Like enough that I would specifically comment on him being especially jerky. Yeah, this is this is the kind of jerk stuff that establishes Henry Pym as a jerk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then there's a second story, um, the Hulk story, uh, is called the Horde of Humanoids, uh, which is written by Stan Lee. Art by Steve Ditko, inked by George Bell. It's the Hulk versus the leader again in a continuation of their story. Um, uh, with a guest appearance by President Lyndon Baines Johnson. <laughs> you get so, to see his back. It's very exciting. <laughs> um, so uh, I put 60 seconds on this clock. If you're ready uh, to face this head on, um, I'm ready to hit the start button. This is a solid whatever. Let's uh, do it. Let's do it. Okay, so we have uh, we start start with... Henry Pym building an ant, uh, a robot ant, so that he could find out more about ants. <laughs> um, <laughs> while he's doing it, uh, uh, Jan drops uh, some some like vacuum some, tubes, yeah, or vacuum tubes that yeah. he doesn't have a replacement for, and he really lays into her just yeah. verbally, um, enough so that she takes off. Um, and you see all these other indicators that he's really just sort of uh, managing her entire life. Yeah. Um, then he, uh, can't get a hold of her. Some, uh, her plane gets taken down by Atuma, who we've met before, who is a sort of rebel of Atlantis. Yes. Um, he captures a plane, a big fight ensues. I'm going to run out of time really fast. Um, <laughs> and, uh, he, giant man basically finds, finds them, saves her, sends Atuma back. Uh, then the Hulk fights a bunch of spongy guys. Yeah. Leader and, and makes his, leader makes more of those spongy androids, and he we just leave the Hulk about to turn into Banner covered with spongy androids. Right, that's how that that one rolls. Yep, yep, exactly. I'll I'll recap what I remember of the LBJ guest appearance. Oh where, yeah. So uh, Major Glenn Talbot, who suspects he the the new army guy uh, who suspects that Banner is a traitor, um, his Banner's nuclear device is being transported on a train. Banner wants to go with it um, and make sure everything's cool. Talbot says, no, you can't. Rick Jones intercedes by going to the White House and showing his Avengers membership <laughs> card, which gets him straight in to see the president, oh, yeah. who personally says to Major Talbot, uh, I pardon Bruce Banner, let him on the train. Right, because Rick 
tells LBJ, or it's inferred that he tells LBJ that Hulk is Bruce Banner. Right. Yes. Uh, so he he so tells him his secret identity. There's yeah. two people in the world who know that Bruce Banner is the Hulk. It's yeah. Rick Jones and the President of the United States. <laughs> it's such a weird thing. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Nobody's going to let that kid into the White House. No, no, not at all. He's a wild card. Well, that was a little bumpy. Let's see uh, what we can do with Journey into Mystery 113. Oh, this is getting bumpier. Yeah. Um, this story is called A World Gone Mad, written by Stan Lee, with art by Jack Kirby, inked by Chick Stone. It's Thor versus The Return of the Grey Gargoyle. Sort of this issue, I'll just kind of set you up. Mm-hmm. Uh, lame Dr. Blake tries and fails to reveal his uh, secret Thor identity to Jane Foster. And then there's a backup story, uh, Tales of Asgard, The Boyhood of Loki, um, which is written by Stan Lee, art by Jack Kirby, inked by Vince Coletta. Uh, Loki tries to start some nonsense uh, in Asgard uh, as a boy, and Thor bails him out. Uh, <laughs> so there, that's, that's a freebie for That you. is pretty much the whole thing. That's I, pretty yeah. much it, yeah. Which gives me a little time to dive into something else that I wanted to talk about about these. Oh, excellent. Okay, well, I've got 60 seconds, so I'm just going to go ahead and uh, hit start. Awesome. So this starts off with this huge, uh, with Thor and a bunch of, of gods of Asgard on a flying a sailboat. Um, and it, everything that Stan puts in the captions is is about how Jack just really wanted to draw this. <laughs> And it starts off, it's not even where the story's going to go, but just check out. And every panel is just like, but look at all these people fighting. Isn't it great? And, yeah, uh, I and, love that. And then it's like, now on to the story. And uh, so then we we hear this. He actually, uh, uh, lame Dr. Blake does say, I am Thor, son of Odin, god of thunder. Yeah. To Jane Foster. But uh, then she doesn't believe him. Because, I mean, obviously. he's so lame. Yeah. And then uh, then the uh, gargoyle reappears and right. starts messing stuff up. But Odin is so angry with Thor, he temporarily took his powers away. So right. when he tries to prove that he's Thor, he can't do it. Yeah, so yeah. lame Dr. Blake is just trying to get away from the gargoyle. Um, I can't even remember how that one ends, but I'm guessing... Oh, yeah. Uh, so a strange... Dang. It's so, much, <laughs> so little time. Uh a hero of Asgard who we don't know for a while right. is Onir or Hanir or something. Sounds plausible. Um, uh, goes down and, and with Odin's permission, sneaks down to give him, uh, lame Dr. Blake, 30 seconds of Thor power yeah. to resolve the matter. Yeah. And he like tricks the gargoyle to zapping himself with the electricity from a light pole or something like that. Yeah, I feel like the ticking, there were some dubious physics in this, like the uh, my favorite, uh, and I know I'm taking extra time, the, the gargoyle who touches things and turns them to stone for, yep. for 60 seconds suddenly develops the power to permanently change people. That's what he's threatening, he's threatening with. Yeah. yeah. And he jumps on this um, lame Dr. Blake and Jane Foster in an elevator. He jumps on the elevator cable uh, and turns it into stone. Yeah. Which has no effect, ill effect on the elevator. <laughs> right. Which I was like, that seems, I'm not a science person. Yeah, yeah. There's but, actually, it, it's kind of a cool sequence because like basically as he's chasing them, everything he's touching is turning to stone. So it's like, it's almost like this, this horror movie element where it's like they're fleeing and everything behind them, like the elevator's turning to yeah, stone. It, it is great. Uh, okay. Uh, Daredevil number six. Uh, this one's called Trapped by the Fellowship of Fear, written by Stan Lee with art by Wally Wood. Daredevil takes on a new supervillain team, the Fellowship of Fear, which is made up of Ox from the Enforcers, Eel from 
some uninspiring human torch comics <laughs> um and a, a new arrival mr fear mr yeah. fear looked pretty cool at yeah. first then you find out he just really likes wax mannequins yeah um which is less cool but anyway you've got 60 seconds to walk us through it are you ready uh whatever all right go for it okay so daredevil uh this does look pretty cool um wally woods work on this um the uh daredevil ends up fighting these three uh basically mr fear who's not even a doctor um he <laughs> he has a gas pellet i don't know why his his work in wax museum creations uh gets him into chemistry but he he can shoot this pellet oh he just experiments randomly that's how he gets to it <laughs> till he till he scares himself so he's afraid of his cat and then he so he's just the lame, lame villain. He uh he makes Daredevil actually scared because he sprays him with this gas and, and the man without fear and, has fear. Yeah, finally. and Matt yeah. Murdock is very doubting himself for a long time. Uh, a lot of craziness ensues as these three attack. I can't. I know that Foggy, it gets suspicious, goes back to investigate this wax museum because they're lured there by a wax figure of Daredevil. Right. Um, and Foggy gets messed up and put in the hospital. Um, Daredevil has to defend him there and everything comes out. Okay. I love the artwork in this issue. Um, it has this really very smooth, um, it's, it's like a golden age feel. Cause mm -hmm. I mean, that's what Wally Wood comes out of. Like it's where he really made his mark, but I feel like he's even kind of turning it up a little bit. Like in something, especially about the, like the old school Daredevil costume, it just really feels like a 1940s or 1950s comic. Yeah. Um, I, there were a lot of things I had a hard time. I didn't pick a panel from here because I, there were a number of panels I liked so much. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Get, the line work is, is just very smooth. Um, and it's just very clean. Uh, the color work is, is fantastic. Uh, it's working with a really limited palette. Um, yeah. I just felt like, Although the story is kind of a nothing story, it's just told so well. Yeah, uh, the action is paced out. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's like Ditko esque in the and how how clean the action yeah. makes sense to you. There's yep. never a moment where you're like, wait, what? How did that guy come back? Or yeah. where did he go? Yeah. All right, we're in the home stretch now. Oh, thank uh, goodness. We've got three issues left to go, um, and all three of these issues have something in common. Um, there is a mini subplot that's running through um this month's worth of comics where uh doris evans the human torch's girlfriend decides that she all of a sudden is kind of sweet on peter parker so this plays out across the last three issues that we're going to talk about um here on marvel by the minute but uh let's go ahead and start out with amazing spider-man number 21 where they first meet um this story is called where flies the beetle uh, it's written by Stan Lee. The art is by Steve Ditko. Spider-Man and the Human Torch uh, take on the Beetle and also, of course, fight each other because that's the way these things go. And like I said, this is uh, the story where Doris Evans meets Peter Parker and she wishes that her boyfriend, Johnny Storm, could be a little bit more like this sweet and sensitive young man. Mm -hmm. Are you ready to talk about I... Amazing Spider-Man? Whatever. All right, go for it. Uh, so this would have been great for me to have read before I read the other ones, but it was the last <laughs> one I read. So I'm like, yes. why? When did Peter meet? What the heck? Yeah. So uh, we we see at some point, um, first we see a date, another date where Doris is mad that, uh, or Dory as he calls her sometimes, yeah. is mad that uh, 
that Johnny keeps turning into the Human Torch and flying off. Uh, this time it's because the Beetle got out of jail and it, with his armor and immediately went behind a tree, put it on, and started crime again. I know. I love that so much. He doesn't even, like, stop for a potty break. Yeah. Dude just gets to crime. Does not even pretend to have reformed even slightly. And as the Human Torch is going around looking for him, he's doing his normal showboating. Uh, it makes Peter mad, but also Peter... Uh, some some kids run into uh, Doris and Peter helps her pick up all her stuff and finds her wallet and goes and takes it back to her. So he's at her house, uh, knows where she lives, and she that's how they meet. That was really not enough time <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. I mean, they do wind up taking down the Beetle, of course. Um, There's this huge fight with Spider-Man and the Beetle in in doris's living room yes. which is hilarious to yeah. me for some reason yep. and just then, like drapes and furniture getting crashed and just thinking of how hilarious that would be like this 60s fairly posh living room just getting trashed by these two and then um the whole reason that spidey's there is because he's like well if if she likes peter parker she loves Spider-Man and like he goes in there to like literally steal Johnny Storm's girlfriend. I think this is the second time he's tried to do this also. Yeah. So. He's, he's really insecure. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And they, it it's, and Johnny gets confused. He sees Spider-Man following the beetle. The beetles taking Doris. It, you know, they get in a fight. Then yep. They go fight the beetle. Yep. Peter throws some insults straight at Johnny Storm's face during this. Thing. Yeah. He, uh, he throws some shade and he knows <laughs> the great thing is like, Peter knows that Johnny's the Human Torch. Johnny doesn't know that Peter is Spider-Man. He says, you may be a big, brave superhero to everyone else, but to me, you're just a knuckleheaded pain in the neck. Get the message? <laughs> he's just hes just Peter Parker in front of the kids at school, yep. just laying into Johnny Storm. I love uh, it. It's so good. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, well, let's continue this, uh, this strange saga of... Peter Parker and Dory Evans uh, in Strange Tales, number 129. Uh, the first story, um, the uh, Human Torch and Thing story, is The Terrible Trio, which is written by Stan Lee with art by Dick Ayers, inked by Frankie Ray. Um, so the Human Torch and the Thing take on the Terrible Trio, which, um, if you don't remember them, it's totally understandable. Um, <laughs> it's Dr. Doom's Three Flunkies from the weirdest issue of Fantastic Four to date, Um but handsome Harry, Yogi, something, and uh, so and a strong a guy. Bull, I think bull, is this guy. Yeah. They're all named something. Right, like yeah. Um, and this one does have another reference to Doris Evans' little crush on Peter Parker. And then uh, there's a Doctor Strange story. Beware, Tibero, the tyrant of the sixth dimension, which is written by Don Rico with a plotting assist by Stan Lee, art by Steve Ditko. I don't know what that means because... Ditko basically handed in his Doctor Strange stories pretty much finished, and it was just a matter of adding, like, the finished dialogue to them, so... I'm also wondering if there's, like, some just pen names going on here, too, I don't know, yeah. To not, like, own up... I don't know that Stan would do that, necessarily. Right. So I don't... I have no idea what's happening. Yeah, it's it's interesting. This is the first time in a while that uh, Stan hasn't scripted everything, mm -hmm. Um you know, or at least taking the credit for it. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, it, it, for the past several months, he's been, you know, the sole writer credit on all the Marvel books. And for whatever reason, this month, uh, there's two stories where um, he is not. Anyway, I digress. I'm going to uh, blow up on this one, too. I know I am. Sweet. All right. Well, uh, no time like the present. 60 seconds on the clock. Go for it. Okay. So we start off with uh, a Johnny... Um, 
golfing <laughs> with, <laughs> with Dory. Uh, he, he misses a putt, gets really mad, burns the ball. Um, and she says, a gentleman like Peter Parker would never lose his temper in such a juvenile way. And another thing. And then he gets a, he gets paged basically. Right. Uh, 60s paged with his special Fantastic Four thing. Uh, then he gets in a big fight with the these three that are a little super powered from Doctor Doom. He gets his leg caught in a train track and the thing has to save him by stopping <laughs> an entire train while he's wrapped in, in like, uh, what do you call those things? Rails. Yeah. Um, which he does. The end. Uh, the I thought the tyrant... Uh, uh, Tibero, the tyrant of the sixth dimension, was pretty cool. There was this uh, this show of a scientist on, called the Twelfth Hour, and they're trying to disclaim the supernatural and black right. magic. Uh, and then they bring out this statue that sucks them into another dimension, and they're saved by Doctor Strange. There you go, perfect. You did not blow up at all. I feel like I that had might to have caffeinate been... towards the end. <laughs> that was great. Okay, last comic, and you're out of the woods. Oh, Fantastic Four number thirty-five. Calamity on the Campus, which is written by Stan Lee, art by Jack Kirby with Chick Stone. Fantastic Four take on the returning Diablo, and in his very first appearance ever, in its very first appearance ever, <laughs> Dragon Man. Mm-hmm. There's some kind of important things that happen in this story. Let's see if I miss them. Let's just see if you get them. <laughs> okay, 60 seconds on the clock. Go for it. Okay, uh, speaking of sort of terrifying, Diablo returns. Yep. Um uh, but what's interesting is is the Fantastic Four go to Reed and uh, they go to State University, Reed and Ben's old alma mater. Ah, uh, State University. Uh, that's where a professor is building the Dragon Man. He's trying to build a super-powered android in order to test uh, different superpowers. Uh, but Diablo comes and messes things up, gives this thing life. All kinds of stuff goes terribly wrong. Um, there, I can't even remember there. I know that the Johnny is spending some time thinking about Peter Parker during this issue <laughs> yes. and none of the ladies at college want to have anything to do with it. Right. He's so he's now super insecure. Yeah. Which is and interesting. he does run into Peter Parker. Who's having a, vi- a campus visit because yeah. he's trying to figure out where he's going to go to school. Yeah. So. And, uh, and then, uh, there's, uh, I'm trying to remember that now I'm starting to blank out. Here we go. Totally short circuiting. <laughs> um, oh God, here it's happening. Well, they fight the dragon man and, uh, they defeat it sort of, uh, well, they send it. What do they do? I'm trying to remember how this ends now. You they, see, huh? I mean, I remembered how it ended, but then I didn't even get to that. Right. Uh, I know that they both wind up in a lake, right? Diablo and the dragon man end up in a lake. Um, yeah. the thing rescues them. There's all kinds of weird vents in this lake. So they sort of disappear. Right. Yep. Um, um, and the reason that Dragon Man doesn't obliterate the Fantastic Four is that he seems to be sweet on Sue Storm, who is able to kind of calm him down. Yeah. And uh, but we've overlooked maybe the most significant thing about this, this issue. The very last page. The very last page. Do you want to walk us through it? Johnny and the Thing are getting ready to leave in the Fantastic Car. Um, and Thing asks where asks Johnny where they went, and he says, "Last I saw of them, they were walking down memory lane towards the sweetheart tree." And, uh, <laughs> and apparently, this is a little uh, college campus thing where there's um, it says like all colleges do. There's a quiet lovers lane. Okay. They they move up by this tree that's shaped like a heart, and uh, Reed says, um, "See that tree cut in the shape of a heart." Oh, yes, darling, it's lovely, says Sue. Uh, Well, according to tradition, any couple who holds hands and kiss while standing before it will marry within a year. 
And she said, I've been waiting for you to take my hand. And he says, Sue, my dearest, you mean you feel about me the way that I feel about you? And she says, I've always felt that way, Reed. Perhaps I never fully realized it till now, but it's always been you. Aww. So it uh, looks like some, uh, some, some uh, Cupid's in the, in the mix yeah. for sure here. So they don't like explicitly come out and say it, but at this point, Reed and Sue are engaged. Yeah. He didn't take a knee here. Right. Too. Yeah. yeah. Didn't have a ring. Didn't do that whole thing, but they are officially engaged. So, but how nice that that is happening, you know, just in time for Valentine's Day on our podcast. Mm-hmm. So very thoughtful uh, of Stan and Jack to, uh, to time that out so well for us. For when we decided to randomly start this thing a while ago. Exactly. Could not have worked out better if we planned it. And we certainly didn't. We haven't, we planned very little on this podcast. <laughs> you might guess. <laughs> dear, dear listeners. Okay, cool. Well, you made it through another Marvel by the Minute. That um, is more important than this engagement thing. Absolutely. I've survived Marvel by the Minute. Again. Yeah. Uh, let's go ahead, uh, take a break. Um, when we come back, we're going to uh, take a deep dive into the origin of the Mandarin here on Marvel by the Month. We're back here on Marvel by the Month. We're going to talk about Tales of Suspense number 62. This one's got two stories in it. Um, The first story is called The Origin of the Mandarin, which is written by Stan Lee with art by Don Heck, inked by Dick Ayers. Uh, And the second story is a Captain America story called Breakout in Cell Block 10, which is written by Stan Lee with art by Jack Kirby, inked by Chick Stone. Let's go ahead and and do a quick overview of the second story first. Um, It's a good story. Um, It's got great Jack Kirby, Captain America art, which should come as a surprise to no one. Um, It's not especially historically significant. It's also super similar to the one from a couple months ago when Cap was uh, attacked by Zemo's army of assassins at Avengers Mansion. Um, so Rob, you want to do, I know you just got through Marvel by the minute. You want to do do a quick summary on this one? (laughs) Uh, so Cap is, it just starts off with Cap, like fighting a bunch of prisoners. Yeah. And then it sort of backs (laughs) into how he got there. He's lured to a prison to show off his acrobatic abilities. He realizes too late that the inmates have broken out and are impersonating the warden and the staff. (laughs) So they lock up Cap take his shield because they want to use the magnetic devices in his shield that they've heard about in the papers right uh to open the magnetically sealed front gate of the prison it's like this big vault door they get it they walk over there and just nothing happens right so they're fairly disappointed yeah but there's Uh, a reason for that yeah cap escapes takes them all down and then reveals that he removed all of iron man's magnetic gadgets because they were throwing off the balance of his shield <laughs> so it's, I, this, I feel like kirby was like we need to get rid of this magnetic nonsense. yeah he, i don't think kirby liked the gimmick at all yeah yeah he wanted cap to just be like a guy who is you know pretty peak guy yep how does the front gate unlock with a code phrase Captain America. <laughs> so if just, the prisoners had just said the name of the guy they took captive. I feel like they probably did during this fight, but yeah. you know, maybe they weren't close enough to the transistor powered microphone. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean, fun story, super action packed, um, great Kirby art, but you know, it's, yeah, it's uh, just Kirby drawing cap fighting a whole bunch of people. Yeah. Yeah. Which is always fun. But, um, I think the real meat of this issue, um, is the Iron Man story of uh, the origin of the Mandarin. So apparently this story 
according to Stan. So <laughs> who knows? <laughs> says that uh, this was uh, they did this one in response to more than 500 requests for Mandy's origin. I feel like that it equals 12 or 13. Yeah. It's hard to say with Stan's sensationalism. When you the yeah. Stan multiplier. Yeah. 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 Just to kind of remind you all of where uh, we left off last issue. Uh, Iron Man headed to China on a mission of vengeance against the Mandarin, uh, who had blasted his home with a space laser and left the world thinking that Tony Stark was dead. Um, As Iron Man approached Mandarin's castle, the Mandarin blasted him with another beam from his castle. That would be a castle laser. Castle laser. Space laser, castle laser. Right, exactly. And I think it's the same laser, but he has like reflective satellites if he needs to have it go further. Right. Um, So yeah, as Iron Man approaches, the Mandarin blasts him with another beam from his castle, and a giant robot named Koto beat Iron Man down and captured him. (laughs) Uh, So we begin the story... Uh, with Iron Man bound to a giant wheel as the Mandarin prepares to tell him his life story. (laughs) And then uh, this is it. The Mandarin's father, who was born into the wealthiest family in China, was a direct descendant of Genghis Khan. But he married beneath him and wed a high-born Englishwoman. The day the Mandarin was born, an idol fell and crushed his father, and his mother died of a broken heart. Ouch. Yeah. So Mandy's aunt tried to ditch him in another village, but was discouraged by a falling chandelier that nearly killed her. (laughs) So she resolves to, quote, teach him to hate the world as I hate it, for I have been cheated of my fortune, of love, of everything I have ever desired. Yeah, some very strong Miss Havisham vibes there. That's a bad nanny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, Mandy invests his inheritance in learning, quote, the sciences of the world, the arts of warfare, and the subtle crafts of villainy. You're already rich. <laughs> I mean, you can. I mean, It's like, it, yeah, I, you know, not to get classist here, but if you're already rich, you probably have mastered some of the subtle <laughs> arts of villainy. Just given to you. <laughs> uh, so uh, then one day, um, you know, as he's you know doing all this and. Uh, you know, living the life of a nobleman, um, Chinese officials show up and claim everything he owns. Uh, I think this coincides with the Chinese Revolution, which happened in 1949. Mm-hmm. So that's when, you know, communism swept through China officially. Um, and uh, uh, a lot of stuff uh, just got taken over by the state. So um, so communism is Mandarin's secret origin. <laughs> and, and his kryptonite. Yes. Uh, so... Uh, the day after this happens, uh, Mandarin's aunt dies. Uh, so he wanders the land as a nobleman without wealth. Uh, he refuses to sacrifice his pride at all. Um, he, uh, although he has nothing, uh, he will not beg. He will not work. Um, he just <laughs> kind of, you know, wanders the earth like, a, like a snob. Yep. Um, he can't, da- we will not work is, is true. It's super yeah. funny. When I read that, I was like, oh, he won't deign to work. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, he, he's wandering the land. Eventually he winds up being warned against entering the forbidden Valley of spirits. Uh, so of course he does exactly that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, um, he finds the skeleton of a dragon in a cave, which startles him so badly that he falls down the steep Valley walls and lands in an alien spaceship. I love that. <laughs> um, so he accesses a weird mental log. Uh, it's like a helmet that's telling him all of the 
memories of the alien pilot who crashed on Earth and was hunted and killed by the locals because he resembled a Chinese dragon. Yep. So that's where the dragon legend and the dragon skeleton came from. Yep. I, I feel like Stan undersold this piece yes. in the story. <laughs> I was like, I want to know more about all of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are future, I know there's future comics that go into much greater detail on all this. And I'm really glad because like everything that we have described so far takes place in about two and a half or three pages. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's it's too fast. Yep. Um, Mandy also finds 10 gems imbued with unlimited energy set into rings, which he takes with him. So those are his lucky charms. Yep. He spends years studying the alien technology. Uh, he outfits a deserted castle in the Valley of Spirits as his lair. Um, and then finally, uh, once he figures out how to use the rings of power, um, he sets out and subjugates entire villages to his will. And now he's ready to do the same to the world. Um, so uh, his latest master plan is that he's going to help China launch a missile. But what they don't know is that it's uh, he's going to make sure that it hits the island of Formosa, uh, which is going to start uh, World War III um, since that's in Japan and that's backed by the United States. And that's going to you know start a nuclear exchange. Yeah, that's a it's a pretty solid villainy thing. Sure. Um, yep. Having told Iron Man all about where he came from and what he's planning on doing, uh, the Mandarin does the classic supervillain thing and turns on his death trap without sticking around to see if it actually kills Iron Man. <laughs> it's such like a Batman TV show thing. Yeah. Like, yep. Now you will spin to your death. Yeah. Uh, the wheel that Iron Man is bound to starts spinning around and around at fantastic speed. Uh, once Mandy leaves, Iron Man severs the titanium cables with like a hidden diamond blade or something. Yes. Uh, then he fires the cables into his armor and uses the spinning wheel to recharge his batteries. So I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, that works. Uh, in no time, Iron Man's armor is recharged and he's free. Uh, he frees himself to stop the Mandarin. Yep. Okay. So Iron Man's back in the game. Mandarin has headed off to the missile site. Um, and uh, Iron Man flies to the missile site where the Mandarin has once again initiated a plan that he doesn't stick around to see the end of. That would be work. Yeah. He does not deign to work. No, he doesn't deign to see things through. <laughs> um, so uh, the missile takes off and so does the Mandarin uh, in opposite directions. Iron Man intercepts the missile uh, and reverses its course, uh, which causes it to return to the launch site and destroy it. And this makes the Chinese army believe that the Mandarin has betrayed them. They think that he programmed the missile to turn around and blow them up. That's a good move. Yep. Uh, then the, then Iron Man pursues the Mandarin and smashes his getaway jet car and the fight begins. Yes. Uh, for the first time, we see most of the individual powers of Mandy's rings. Flames, electroblast, poison gas, blinding light, disintegrator ray, gas solidifier. Gas solidifier. Um, black light. That sounds cool. Yep. Jet power. Yeah. Yeah, so, so other than gas solidifier, I was on board. <laughs> so I think previously we've only seen Mandarin like use the rings to like shoot a beam at a control console to activate it or something. Because he's not going to push it himself. Right, because he yep. doesn't deign to work. <laughs> uh, but now we realize it's like, oh, each of these has its own like magical power uh, or alien technology, you know. Also, like reading this, I was wondering if what was Stan making like an intentional reference to Green Lantern? Because like he finds rings in a crashed alien spaceship oh. and they have magical powers. Like, you know, it's, it sounds a little like green lantern when you put be. it that way. Yeah. I mean, it's not one-to-one, -one, but right. the dragon wasn't waiting there to say like, there's a bunch of us with rings. Right. <laughs> Go out and make villainy. Um, but anyway, so, uh, you know, 
the fl- the fight uh, between Iron Man and uh, Mandarin is pretty even um, until the Chinese army shows up uh, because they are mad at Mandarin <laughs> uh, and they start shooting at him um, and he winds up retreating back to his castle. Uh, Iron Man hitches a ride home on a U.S. military jet and Mandarin uh, sits in his castle and broods on his defeat and that's where we leave him. Mm-hmm. I feel like it took forever for Iron Man to finally get a halfway decent villain. I feel like we read like the first half dozen or dozen Iron Man stories and it's just Mm. like, well, here's another guy we're never going to see again. Um, But I feel like uh, this actually solidifies Mandarin as, I'm not going to say like Dr. Doom level or even Dr. Octopus level. But but he's a high stakes supervillain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's got like actually a pretty good origin story. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the whole like, you know, cursed birth uh, and then just the 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 crazy pride um like all the good marvel villains have that yeah uh, they they just have this like unconquerable completely crippling amount of pride <laughs> yes i do a also the descendant of genghis khan that that idea of i was born to rule yeah. the world yeah i hope you like mandarin because you're going to be getting lots of steam and helpings of him uh going forward um he's officially the a-list iron man villain now um, but with all those 500 a plus letters asking for his origin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, on that note, um, let's go ahead and take our final break. Uh, and when we come back, um, we're going to meet a fellow by the name of Count Nefariah here on Marvel by the Month. <laughs> Welcome back to Marvel by the Month. It's time to talk through Avengers number 13. The story is called The Castle of Count Nefaria. See, I, I thought yeah. it was Nefaria. We just talked about this sort of off mic. Yeah. Um, it seems like nefarious. That That's pretty solid for villain name. Yep. But you... You came up with this pronunciation through, I would call, research. Right, yes, uh, from watching cartoons. Um, I can't remember which uh, series it was. Uh, It might have been like the X-Men cartoon from the 90s or something like that, but I always read it as Count Nefaria, um, and then I saw uh, a cartoon where it was pronounced Nefaria. I'm like, oh, well, uh, that sounds way cooler, and so there you go. So yeah, the story is written by Stan Lee. The art is by Don Heck. It's inked by Dick Ayers. Um, so this is the first appearance of uh, both Count Nefariah and the Magia. Uh, so <laughs> who are Count Nefariah and the Magia, Rob? Uh, the Magia is basically the Mafia, a worldwide crime cartel. Oh yeah, because those are definitely some people whose uh, trademark you do not want to infringe Mm-mm. upon. No, and Count Nefariah, I'm going to get this, uh, is the most powerful crime lord on earth. Mm, Bold claim. And the head of the Magia. uh, (laughs) But the world is unaware of that. He's generally only known as Europe's wealthiest nobleman. So again, we have a rich guy. Just just sit back and be rich, man. Yep. Yeah. Why are you... The villainy takes care of itself at that point. Yeah, yeah. Like, I assume he didn't rise to wealth because of his magia connections right maybe he did maybe this goes back obviously i have not done a ton of research (laughs) honestly i have read like two count nefariah stories in my life uh there's this one and then there's uh, the all new all different x-men in the 70s um one of their very first missions is against uh, count nefariah uh and it goes pretty badly for them so but i think that's the only times that i remember uh this character um I know he appears a bunch in Marvel comics. I just, yeah, I don't, I didn't yeah. remember him at all. He's like a forgettable nobleman. He's got a 
you know, monocle. Yeah, he's he's kind of a beardy Dracula type. Yeah. Uh, the story opens with the Avengers. They're stopping members of the Magia from stealing a shipment of furs, which seems a little below their pay grade, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever. You can't fight Kang every month, I guess. <laughs> um, so uh, what we learn, though, is that the Avengers are putting the Magia out of business, and the Count isn't happy about it. Uh, and this leads into uh, kind of a funny sequence where... So if you're only looking at the art... Uh, it's pretty clear that what happens here is that Count Neferiah teleports a Magia family head to his castle uh, and then executes him for his failure. Uh, so that's that's the story that Don Heck has drawn. Yeah. Um, what <laughs> When you read it with Stan's word balloons, though, um, apparently what is happening is that the Count only brought the image of the Magia member to his castle uh, to deliver, quote, the punishment. Um which is just banishment from the Magia. So it's like the PG version of whacking a guy. Right. Yeah. Like, it's it's like, I'm going to, I brought your hologram here to say you, you're banished. So. Right. Yeah. Later. Right. Good day. It's, it's very strange. Um, so then Count Neferiah resolves to deal with the Avengers. And the first step in his plan is to transport his castle stone by stone to America. Yeah. Uh, but he's rich, man. Criminal mastermind. What the? So this doesn't seem like the most efficient way to deal with an urgent problem. No. But but in a matter of weeks, uh, the job is completed and Nefariah holds a gala event uh, to benefit charity. Yeah. That. How does how can that, how can that happen? Uh, weeks. You got a, you got a lot of construction crews over here digging the holes. You got uh, I don't know why you need to take the whole castle over there. Right. Uh, stone he, by stone. Yeah. Can he just buy a castle here? Get some other stones. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, he's got a lot of money. All right. So, uh, of course, uh, he invites the Avengers to this gala event. Uh, and when they arrive, Nefariah shows them to individual rooms so they can refresh themselves before the big ceremony. But uh, what they don't know, uh, but honestly should have seen coming a mile away, is that there are... Um, these things called time transcender beams um, in each room, which are basically just fancy lights that hypnotize them. Um, and they wind up being immobilized um, and also completely unaware of uh, time passing. Um, so it's like weed in the nature channel. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So he basically like kind of carbonites them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, he creates three dimensional images of the Avengers that are under his complete control. So, okay, so he's created these weird holograms. What does he do with these holograms? And then he uh, he sends the fake Avengers to appear in a high-level Pentagon meeting and announce that they're taking command of the United States. Okay. Uh, then they just leave. They just say, <laughs> we're doing this, and they walk out. Right. Uh, but they spook the Pentagon brass enough that, that the army issues shoot-on-site orders for the Avengers. Clear. I mean, these people have dealt with scrolls already, right. all kinds of, you know dupes robots yeah. whatever but they're just like nope that was definitely the avengers you could tell by their cologne or something right, right. you know the uh it is amazing how absolutely quickly the public is ready to believe the absolute worst about their heroes yeah but um, that does seem not it's not totally off no that's it's true um stan was onto something uh, so the teen brigade, remember them, uh, goes looking for the Avengers. Um, they're immediately captured by Neferiah's goons. Uh, meanwhile, Neferiah allows the Avengers, who have no idea any of this has happened, uh, he allows them to wake up and tells them that the charity event has been postponed until tomorrow. <laughs> uh, so as soon as the Avengers leave his castle, the army attacks them. 
and the Avengers do not think twice about responding in kind. They are wrecking tanks. They are like throwing hammers through planes. Yeah, I think the the <laughs> time transcender beam messed with them a little bit more than usual. Well, that would be a good way to get a no prize. Yeah, um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, eventually, so eventually they learn they've been framed for treason. And they retreat to a secret headquarters that we're only just finding out about now. Um, uh, Meanwhile, the teen brigade and Rick Jones are uh, trying to contact the Avengers, but it just results in them getting trapped in an inescapable device by Nefariah. Yeah. The Avengers decide to head to Nefariah's castle. Um, I think just because they assume that he's got something to do with this, I don't think there's anything in particular that tips them off because the teen brigade wasn't successful in actually contacting them. (laughs) Um so uh, they get there. Uh, Thor, Giant Man, Wasp, and Iron Man all immediately wind up getting paralyzed by Nefariah's castle defenses. But, you know, Cap finds a way in because that's what Cap does. Uh, he beats up a bunch of Magia goons, also what Cap does, um, and rescues the Teen Brigade, who just so happened to have been imprisoned next to the paralysis antidote that Nefariah couldn't stop taunting them with. <laughs> Um, so they go to uh, rescue the other Avengers while Cap signals a passing Navy ship on the Hudson by like reflecting light off of his shield from a balcony window. Solid move. Yep. Um, yeah, I did think that for a second when I saw that that trap that had all these little bulbs on it yeah. that were the paralysis whatever yep. juice, um, I was hoping they were glue. I mean, <laughs> I was hoping they were glue. Yes. Adhesive. Uh, they weren't. To help to help build your thesis. Um, yes. Uh, so uh, the rest of the Avengers bust into the castle and capture Count Nefariah, who pleads for his freedom and confesses everything that he did in front of a general. As, good as to go. quickly as they decided they were public enemy number one, yeah. uh, they completely exonerate them. Um, but just when it seems like everything has turned out all right, we learn that during the fighting off camera, uh, a stray bullet hit the wasp and she's near death. What? Yeah. That just like, we need a cliffhanger here. Could you just one panel this thing? Yeah. Sure. So yeah, to be continued, uh, man, overall, uh, this is a crazy sloppy issue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like there's just no two ways around it. There's so many weird leaps of logic. Uh, yeah. It feels like a old, like uh giant man or Ant-Man Larry Lieber story where yeah. there's just, uh, random crap happening all the time. Yeah. yeah. And, and I hate to, I hate to say it, but like there's a lot of places in here where it really feels like Stan is having to write around, uh, some like not great visual storytelling by Don Heck. Yeah. Um, there's like, there's no time to get another page in here because yeah. it's too late. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it, the, I mean, like for example, the reveal of the wasp being critically injured, it just comes out of nowhere. I mean, she's barely even a part of the story. Mm-hmm. She hasn't even been seen in the last quarter of the story until she shows up nearly dead. <laughs> so it's just like out of nowhere. Right. There's yeah. no build to it. There's no reason for it. Right. There's no, it, it leaves you, I mean, I remember thinking, did I miss a page? So there's a way to like surprise your reader with something um, where it's impactful. And then there's a way to surprise your reader with something that is just confusing. And that <laughs> this is the latter. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for all of its flaws, this with Wasp being um, critically injured like this, this is an event. It kicks off a storyline uh, that's going to play out over the next several months. Um, ultimately... Um, it's going to pay off uh, in the episode of our show that we're going to be performing live at Books with Pictures on February 29th. Da, 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 da. Oh, man. that uh, I felt the spirit of Stan Lee. Uh, I wanted to just draw like a big starburst around you as you said it. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, that that was um, that was some pretty good shilling, if I do say so myself. That's Avengers. Uh, that's all of our comics for the month. Um, now we just have to talk about our panels of the month. Um, Rob, would you like to uh, share your panel of the sure. month? Sure. I have a I have a weird one for me. The, uh, I try to go either with something really momentous or something that just sort of stuck in my head. And yeah. mine was um, Journey into Mystery, number 113, page 10, panel 6. And it's just uh, it's just some guy on a horse on the Rainbow Bridge. Oh, uh, yeah. And it's the mysterious figure is headed to Earth to uh, to help lame Dr. Blake. Um, but something about the coloring, uh, and I said this about uh, this whole book, but mm-hmm. it's got this really vibrant super 60s poppy thing going on yeah but it's also really majestic in a very small panel you know just a a, of a six six panel page kirby art with some weird planets and the way the the bridge breaks through with this sort of glowing uh planetoid thing behind it and the the horse it just uh, it struck me and just i remember days later because this was one of the first ones i read this week Mm. thinking I guess, I guess that's my panel. I don't yeah. know why it's in my head so bad, but yep. it's just there. Yeah. How about you? What do you got? Uh, well, actually, you kind of touched on it when we were talking about the issue. But uh, so sort of for similar reasons, uh, mine uh, comes from Daredevil number six. Uh, it's page 19, uh, right near the end of the story, uh, panel number four. So uh, I like all the art in this issue an awful lot. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I think Wally Wood gives it such a great, clean golden age feel and this panel uh, is one example of how well that style really suits this story all that's happening in this panel is that daredevil is tripping ox who is charging at daredevil um, and ox is just smashing face first into a door but the way that wood draws it uh, i think it just conveys such a sense of velocity and force like you get a real sense of the weight um and Mm -hmm. and uh, that that the ox is hitting you see, like plaster coming off around on the wall yeah. around the door frame yeah. yeah and not just like the plaster coming off in the door frame but if you look it's like it's coming off on where the hinges were attached to yeah. the wall you and know? the hinges flying off and the hinges are yeah. flying off so it's like it's just one of those things where if you're reading this quickly you know it's, it's it looks fine but mm-hmm. you know you're not thinking it's anything special but there's a lot of just little moments uh, and, and just like if you look closely at some of these panels um, you just get rewarded with almost this infinite level of detail. Um, yeah. and it's just like, I mean, it's a, just a master at work, you know, with the, with the pencil. Um, and the very next panel of the sequence, uh, I, I loved this one caught my eye quite a bit. Just realizing there's stairs. Yes. Beyond, there's stairs beyond the door. The door. So you see that, that ox is falling down. Yeah. And then a couple panels later, you see him like staggering back up the stairs. Yeah. Um, and then on the next page, you just see like the ox, he's stumbled to the top of the stairs and he just like keels over like and falls flat and, on his face. And uh, Daredevil does cry out for all of you uh, Portland soccer fans, Timber. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Uh, yeah. So nice work there by Wally Wood. Um, always a pleasure to see him. I'm sorry that he's only going to be on Daredevil for another couple of issues because yeah. you know, I, I could read his stuff forever. Hey, thanks for doing another one of these with me. Did you know this is our 40th episode? Wow. Yeah. Wow, it's middle aged now. I know. <laughs> uh, that's a lot of months. Um, and uh, thank you, listeners, for uh, sticking with us and for listening to however many of these you've listened to. Uh, we hope we see some of you live February 29th at Books with Pictures for our first ever live show. 
until next week, uh, my name is Brian Stratton. And I'm Rob Milne. And we will see you next week for next month. Thank you.